So, uh, my name is Rick Gerhardt, and I'm an elder here at Antioch. Uh, I'm a biologist by day, and I'm a Christian apologist as well. I, I teach at Kilns College. Um, every semester, I, I get to teach a different course, and uh, Ken asked me to, to share with you this morning. So, let's begin with the verse that we'll use as our, our jumping-off spot this morning, and that comes from Romans 12, 2. And I think it's going to be on the board. Um, Romans 12.2, the Holy Spirit uh, inspiring Paul to write to the young church in Rome. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may... I, I can't actually read it on the screen there, so... Um, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I want to focus this morning on the first half of that verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? Um, to put this verse in its context, the, the, the verse just prior to this talks about, ask, asks the, the young believers in Rome to offer up their bodies as living sacrifices. So bodies and minds are two distinct things in Paul's mind, and that's part of what we're going to talk about this morning. But that, that prior verse uh, begins with a therefore. That is, based on what's gone previously in Paul's letter to the Romans, we should offer our, our, our bodies as a sacrifice and, and our minds for transformation. And basically what went previously is the gospel in its clearest and more, most thorough articulation th throughout the New Testament. So, so based on the good news of Christ's incoming kingdom and what he's done for us on the cross and through the resurrection, we should give our bodies as a living sacrifice and we should, we should open our minds to transformation, okay? Now, um, there, there's a lot of ways I could go with just this first half of this verse. I could, for instance, talk about the fact that the church in our day has largely um, failed at the charge of loving God with all our minds and, and, and allowing our minds to be transformed instead of thinking the way our culture thinks. Um, there was a book came out in the late 90s by uh, church historian and evangelical writer Mark Knoll it was titled, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And the thesis of that book was that the scandal of the evangelical mind today is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. That is, whereas the church used to be at the forefront of political discourse and academia of, of all disciplines, beginning about 100 years ago, we abandoned our place at that forefront and, and, and quit thinking and quit engaging the uh, culture around us uh, with Christian thought, uh, okay? The, um, the Reformed theologian and philosopher R.C. Sproul uh, has a daily radio program which takes its name from this verse. It's called Renewing Your Mind. And Sproul has, has gone on record as saying that we live in the most anti-intellectual period in all of church history. Uh, he would extend that to, you know, the culture around us doesn't think very clearly either, but, uh, but the church is to blame for not taking the life of the mind seriously. Now, all that we do here through the, through the regular preaching at Antioch on Sunday mornings and all that we do at Kilns College is meant to address this. We do care about the life of the mind, and we as Christians ought to be cultivating the life of the mind and having our minds transformed rather than conformed to the world around us. Um, and, and what I want to do this morning is just think about one particular thing uh, in, in a Christian manner. That is, I want to think, uh, think with you about one particular thing in a Christian way as opposed to the way the world thinks about it. And, and we could do that with any number of subjects. We could do that with parenting or, or family life or uh, you name it. And, and that's what we do each Sunday is try to think with you biblically and Christianly about those things. But this morning, I want to turn this verse on itself, and what I want us to think Christianly about 
is this thing called the mind. What is the mind? Um, so, so that's where we're, that's where we're going to go this morning. Um, the Greek word that's translated in this verse, mind, is, is nos, the Greek word nos, and it's, it's not an anatomical term. It, it's talking specifically about the seat of our intellect, um, whatever it is that we use to, to think and remember and, and the place of our desires and our sensations. That's what's in, in view here. In fact, in the Hebrew culture, Old and New Testament, uh, they didn't know much about human anatomy and physiology. So, that, so they never meant to be precise. When, when we read terms like heart and mind and things, those are, those are not anatomical terms in, in either the Greek or the Hebrew, okay? Um, so there's, there's a number of places in the Old Testament, uh, at least one in Psalms and three in, in Jeremiah, where God is referred to as the one who tests heart, or yeah, who tests, searches hearts and tests minds. Now, if we looked very literally at the Hebrew there, uh, it would be the one who searches kidneys and tests hearts instead of searches hearts and tests minds. So, so you need to understand that, that this word knows in, in our verse is not referring to an anatomical place. It's talking about the seat of our intellect. Um, theologians, Bible commentators take from this Greek root um, the word noetic and, and refer to one of the effects of the fall is a suite of effects called the noetic effects. What happened at the fall included, among other things, that, that Adam's ability to know God directly and to know truth was, was bent, okay? That's the noetic effects of the fall. Um, in Mark 1.14, which is right after John the Baptist turns the reins over to Jesus, Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of God is here at hand on earth, and he says, repent and believe this gospel. And that word repent is a, a prefix, meta, which simply means change or transform, attached to uh, a form of this same Greek word, nose. So the repent that Jesus calls those first folks to is really change your mind, transform your mind. The same idea that's here in, in the verse that we're looking at today. Um, I want to read one other translation of this verse just to give you a, another crack at what it... Sometimes we, we read in the, in the translations we're most familiar with and, and we kind of take it for granted or whatever. So I want to give you a different translation of this same verse or the first part of it. And this is the, the Wycliffe translation that was made for the Hawaiian pigeon speakers. Um, so this is a legit translation. Um, Photopipo Rome. Um, and, and here's what verse 2 of chapter 12 says. Hey, no make like how the people nowadays telling you how fo do. Mo better, you guys let God make you guys think different inside so that you can think new way about everything. Okay? So you get that, right? I, I didn't share that because I think any of you have... Hawaiian pidgin as your native language and, and would understand this better. But you, but you see it in a different way. What we're talking about here is thinking differently about everything, okay? <laughs> and in particular, what we want to talk about this morning is, is thinking differently about consciousness and, and the mind. Um, did you ever think about the fact that God cares about your thought life? Did you ever think about the fact that so we, we just finished a series on prayer. And one of the things we learned is that a lot of our prayer is listening to God. And, and a lot of our, uh, of our prayer to God is silent, right? And, and we believe that when I direct a prayer silently to God, that he hears that. Now, if that's the case, is there any reason why he doesn't somehow also have access to the thoughts that we don't specifically direct to him? Right? If God can hear your silent thoughts directed to him as prayer, then he can certainly also hear all of your thoughts, regardless of whether you've directed them to him or not. 
Now, that, that's a scary thought for some of us because we know how our mind wanders and some of, the, some of the dirty things we think about when we're not directing those thoughts to God, right? Fortunately, the Bible also tells us uh, what we should think about. And that comes in Philippians 4, 8, where it, it lists a litany of things that we, uh, we ought to think about. Um, and it does include that we ought to think about things that are worthy and worthwhile, but, but I want you to listen to what the first thing it talks about is. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I find it interesting that the first thing mentioned is that we ought to think about things that are true. Okay? Um, and, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to identify one of, the, one of the thought patterns in the world around us that we ought to reject. And it has to do just with this idea of truth. So I, um, I proctor an online course that I just finished up and it's, it's about a fairly controversial subject. And uh, early on, one of the students, and it, there's a pretty good discussion forum that's a part of the course, and one of the students kind of expressed the idea, well, it, what really matters is that we present people with all of the information and let them make up their own mind. Okay? This is... This is influenced by postmodern thought. So, so postmodern thought kind of gets away from the traditional understanding of truth and says, you know, whatever you believe, it's true for you, right? That doesn't make any sense, and, and we can dissect that if, if we need to take that time. But um, what is truth? And, and I know this is a really basic question, but it, that, that in impacts everything we talk about from the stage here on Sunday mornings. But have you ever thought about what truth is? You use the word all the time. So the correct answer, and I, and I think we could get there eventually through repartee here, but the correct answer is that truth is, is what we refer to the matching relationship between our beliefs or our thoughts and reality. Okay? When our thoughts and beliefs align with the way things really are in the world that we all live in together, we call that truth. Okay? So when we talk about anything controversial otherwise, when we talk, as we will today, about whether there is a distinct thing called mind or if everything reverts to just our brains, there is a reality to which we want to come closer. Right? It, it's not both. It, it, it's not that our thought life is just reducible to the firing of neurons in our brain and at the same time there's something different there that we call mental activity. Both of those contrary are, uh, ideas, they're mutually exclusive, they can't both be true. And just because you believe one and I believe the other doesn't make us both right. Okay? So there's a reality that governs whether or not we've arrived closer to truth. So, in fact, contrary to what this student was saying in his discussion post, what matters in all of education is presenting folks with all of the information that will help them get closer to truth, not just give them the ability to make up their own mind about what, what they want reality to look like. Okay? Are we all clear on that? So one of the ways in which the world wants us to conform to its thought patterns is in thinking that, that the existence of God or, or the existence of uh, immaterial things like mind and consciousness is something that you can make up for yourself and, and whatever you believe about it is okay and true. That's not true. That's, that's part of the Part of the worldview thinking that we need to not conform to, but, but allow the Holy Spirit to, to transform our minds on. Um, so what I really want to spend time talking about today is just that, that question of, are we just 
body and brains, or in the area of intellect, desires, emotions, thoughts, ideas, is there a second thing, uh, a, a mental event taking place? Um, there, there's a range of views on this. I'm going to reduce it to those two because they really have all the, all, all the hard work is done trying to defend one of those two positions. And I'm going to call the first position physicalism, okay, that all we are is physical. There's nothing immaterial about us. Um, I have a quote here by Thomas Huxley, an early evolutionist. He said this in 1871, Mind is a function of matter when that matter has attained a certain degree of organization. Okay? Mind is just a function of matter. All of our beliefs, thoughts, emotions, and such, memories, are ultimately reducible to the firing of neurons in our brain. We haven't discovered how that works yet, but that's it. We're, we're just physical beings. There's no... There's no mental separate substance or anything like that. That's physicalism. Okay, it, it arises out of a fairly recent turn within science, and, and that would be naturalism, the view that that's all that makes up the whole universe. The, the physical, the natural is all there is. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't anything like God or angels or demons or even an immaterial mental life in human beings, okay? So, so the contrary view, I'll just, for the sake of brevity, call dualism. Uh, really what I'm defending is specifically called substance dualism, which says that no, contrary to physicalism, uh, all of those things, emotions, sensations, desires, beliefs, thoughts, memories, are essentially different than just the physical firing of neurons in the brain and such. Now there is, as long as we're in these, these bodies, there is a brain component to our thinking. And in fact, damage to your brain can very much affect your memory and, and your thought patterns and things like that. But the view I'm defending here is that those two mental events and, and what goes on in the brain are two different things correlated and, and dependent on each other in some ways, but that, that physicalism is false, okay? Um, and I, I'm going to argue this, not based on Scripture, but I do need to help you understand that if we come to the conclusion that mental events are different than just the firing of neurons in your brain, that that happens to be the view of, of Scripture as well. Uh, scripture makes it clear that we are more than just body and brains. And throughout Scripture, our thought life is described uh, in, in a separate way. Now, the Bible doesn't take the time to argue for this. The Bible just describes the way reality is. Um, and, and we could go through verse after verse to, to let you see that that's the way the Bible takes it to be. Let me just give you Matthew 10, 28 in which Jesus talking to his disciples says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He goes on to say, but then fear, those who, fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Okay, so Jesus just matter-of-factly states that the body and the soul are two different things. Now, the soul and the mind are not the same thing, although I might kind of for the sake of my arguments, I might interchange them a little bit. Uh, and the reason I'll do that is because both soul and mind are understood to be immaterial things and contrary to the view of physicalism, right? If, if we have the time during the Q&A service afterwards or, or whatever, we can distinguish between soul and mind. The, the short version is that, that the soul is the true person. The soul is who you really are. And the mind is a capacity or a part or a function of your soul, okay? But, but you'll kind of see me use the word soul in some of these passages and arguments because it's an immaterial thing and, and is contrary to physicalism. But the Bible, we could go through verse after verse of the Bible that declares us to be 
uh, soulish persons that are not just reducible to our body and brains, okay? So I, I want to give you several lines of reasoning why you should reject the physicalist view, which is popular in the scientific world in which we live, uh, certainly popular in the popular press that writes about science. Um, and and this will serve just as an outline. I'm, I'm not going to go into in-depth on any of these, but, but here's five, six, seven reasons why you should, you should understand that the, the re real world in which we live, we are more than just our bodies and brains. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, none of these arguments are scripture itself. Uh, we'll come to the conclusion that the mental activity is something different than what happens in our brains. And once we've come to that conclusion, we'll see that it lines up with what Scripture has said all along. But I'm not going to use Scripture to make my argument. And, and that's because I'll assume that there's somebody in here who doesn't believe in the authority and truthfulness of Scripture going in. Okay? Does that sound fair enough? So the first area in which I would say it, it becomes apparent to us that physicalism is not true, even if a lot of scientists today like to, to think it is, is just human experience and intuition. We think about ourselves as something separate than, than our body and brains. Um, and, and this basic, you can take that down. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to this as a summary slide. Um, we think about ourselves as more than body and brains. Uh, and this is partly why almost every culture has always believed a form of dualism. Early Greeks, uh, folks throughout church history, whether, whether Christian or not, all cultures tend to be dualist in this regard. This, this, this idea of physicalism is a very recent phenomenon. It's only come about as science itself has moved from its initial foundation, which was very Christian, to kind of adopting a naturalistic view of the world. It's only been in the last 100, 150 years that anybody had the idea that our, our, my thought life could be reduced to what happens in my brain. Okay? Um, let's just think about that a little bit. Uh, when somebody loses a limb, we don't think of them as less of a person they're still the same person. They just lost a limb. So they're just simple, simple thought experiments allow us to realize that we don't think of ourselves in that way. We think of each other in terms of first-person experience. Um, we know that there are things about our friend that we could never discover just by studying them. Certainly not by studying their outer appearance uh, much less by dissecting them. The way we learn about our friend is by asking her questions about what she likes, what she dislikes, uh, and those sorts of things. Okay? We, and, and, and we know that there are many things inside of us that are truly foundational to who I am as a person that nobody else could know unless I reveal it to them. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, uh, sorry, I sounded like Ken there, didn't I? Uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk in a minute about um, near-death experiences where people claim to have, have left their body when they're clinically dead and yet come back from the dead and they, they experience they're able to relate experiences um, that their mind went through while, while their body was physically dead. For now, let me just point out that the fact that we can even consider those, that idea and find it credible is in part because that's the way we understand ourselves to be. This is not to say we necessarily believe it really happened to this person or not, but the fact that we can even consider it and find it credible is evidence in favor that, that that's probably because we are more than just our bodies, right? Um, 
I have a friend and fellow elder, Neil Cole, who's in the first grade with the children right now, so I'll talk about him here. He's a, he's a rabid fan of the University of North Carolina basketball team. Okay? Now, he has no good reason to be that. I mean, there's nothing inherently that commendable about North Carolina, um, and, and he didn't go there. So I don't understand his, his fandom. Uh, but the point is that w if we could anesthetize him and, and allow him to continue his conscious life, his, continue his thinking, we could dissect every last cell of his brain and we would never come to a place where we said, aha, here's where Neil's thinking about the off-season troubles of their star forward, right? Okay. We understand that, right? We understand that we as individuals, when we think of ourselves as individuals, when we think of our friends as individuals, we, we don't think of them as just body and brains. We recognize that there's a whole thought life and personality that is much nearer the core of who they are than their body and brains, okay? The second thing, second reason why I think we should reject this idea of physicalism is that physicalism ends up uh, as a denial of free will, okay? Physicalists, those who believe that, that we, through evolution, are just body and brain and that somehow what we call our, our mind or our mental life arose through strictly physical processes, they end up denying free will. That is, if I'm just the physical... And, and the product of evolution, then, then all of my choices are determined by my genetic makeup, my physical makeup, and my environment. And yet that's radically contrary to the way we view life. We, we still imprison people for making bad choices because we think they are choices freely made. We don't, uh, I mean, we're moving in this direction, but we don't, consider that every bad decision is a disease or a, or a problem with, with their physical makeup and their environment. We, we live life as though we do have free will and that the choices we make are, are choices we're responsible for. The point is physicalism denies that whole aspect of human experience, our, our belief that we have free will. So it's another reason to reject physicalism. Uh, a third reason uh, is this whole category of near-death experiences. Um, and I need to be a little cautious about this. There's a, a very recent book that came out. I haven't read it, but it's by, uh, actually by a neurosurgeon who believes that he almost died and, and went to heaven before being called back to his body. Um, and, and the caution I would make is that the content of those experiences uh, is influenced by the belief system and such of, of the person making the, having the experience. And, and all I'm really driving at is that the fact of so many such experiences is very good proof that we will out, that our, that our mental life is separate from our physical life. Okay. Now, this is such a, this is a, this is an area of research that's really been focused in on by a lot of uh, neurosurgeons and folks who, uh, doctors who frequently find their patients on the verge of death. Um, and, and there's books been written about some of the amazing experiences of these folks. But we're talking about folks who are clinically dead. They have no brain activity and no heart activity. And they've been, they've been declared dead and yet have come back moments, hours later, revitalize their body and they have stories about what their mental life experienced while their body was lying dead on the operating table. Things like being able to tell the doctor that there's a left tennis shoe on the roof of the building or, or to describe in great detail an accident three blocks down the street. It, it's fun stuff reading this and, and uh, you know, some of them claim to have gotten to the gate of heaven or whatever. Um, that stuff you have to kind of 
take with a grain of salt, but the fact that there are so many such experiences with, with their reports being independently verifiable. In fact, there was a tennis shoe on the roof of the hospital. There was an accident at that time, three blocks down the street, that the, that the dead body and the brain laying on the operating table would have had no way of, of knowing, and yet the mind of the person that, that comes back is able to do that. Um, interestingly, Scripture describes a near-death experience in uh, Luke chapter 8, where Jesus brings Jairus' daughter back from the dead. And the way the scripture has it uh, is that her sp after Jesus said, arise, her spirit returned and she got up at once, okay? So it's the same thing as what, what we're reading about in, in these near-death experiences. Her spirit returned to her body and she got up. Okay, a fourth area that, that comes to bear upon this is, is more generally just neurological research and, and uh, medical research. So in our age, most folks who, uh, who go into neurosurgery and who are trying to discover the, uh, the basis for, for mental illness, for epilepsy, for whatever else, in the brain... Most of those folks have gone into their research with a physicalist view. That is, they begin, just because of the naturalism that has come to pervade science today, they begin thinking that they can discover everything about our mental life just by probing the brain and, and finding the, the different uh, areas involved in, in these different sorts of things. But what they're finding is that that's not the case that they can't discover all that they would like simply by examining the brains. So many of you are familiar with uh, the acronym REM, refers to rapid eye movement, right? What, what, what is rapid eye movement associated with? Dreaming, okay? When you're sleeping, you're, most of the time while you're sleeping, your, your eyes are fairly um, unmoving. But then there comes a period where there's, there's some eye movement going on pretty quick. And, and neurologists, neuroscientists have come to recognize that what you're doing during that period of rapid eye movement is dreaming. But how did they come to that conclusion? Not just by looking from a third-person view of the patient. They had to wake the patient up and ask him, what were you just doing? And the, the patient, from a first-person experience, had to say, you woke me up in the middle of a dream. Okay? So things like this are, are what have led a lot of neurosurgeons to recognize that the physicalist view with which they began to approach their discipline doesn't cut it, that we are more than our brains, that our thought life is more than our brains. So Wilder Penfield is the... Uh, considered to be the father of neurosurgery, the guy who led the way in, in identifying the different regions of the brain and, and what they're associated with. And he says, after years of, of research in this area, he says, to expect the highest brain mechanism or any set of reflexes, however complicated, to carry out what the mind does and thus perform all the functions of the mind is quite absurd. Uh, anthropologist Arthur C. Custance, uh, reviewing the same sort of research, says, to this extent, there is no quarrel between theology and the findings of recent research in, in neurobiology. So a fifth, a fifth reason we should reject physicalism and adapt, uh, recognize that the biblical view is the, the one that matches the reality of the world in which we live is really a more basic thing, and that's kind of a philosophical recognition that mental activities do not share the characteristics of all physical things. Okay, so what philosophers do is distinguish between things. And for, for most philosophers, it's easy to distinguish between memories, thoughts, and sensations and such, and bicycles and... and 
bodies and, and other physical things. Physical things all have certain traits, electrical charge, mass, color, things like that, that are not true of thoughts and memories and desires and beliefs. In fact, more basically, we can say about my belief that it is true or false. But a gray cell, gray matter in the brain, does not have that same characteristic. Uh, the firing of neurons are not about anything as thoughts and beliefs and desires are about things. So just looking at the characteristics shared by these things we call mental activities, we can recognize right away that they have none of the same characteristics as all physical things with which we can compare them. So, you know, one of the ways in which we conform our thinking to the physicalist view is, is we think of our memories as stored in our brains. What I'm saying is that memories are not the sort of things that could be stored in brains. To be sure, there's a, there's a very specific part of our brain that is associated with calling up memories. But the reality is that rather than being analogous to a computer which stores little bits of information physically, uh, the situation with our memories is more like uh, a radio which is necessary for capturing radio waves which are otherwise out there. Okay, the, ra the, the radio signal is not in the radio, the radio is used to access an external radio signal, right? Now that analogy breaks down in that radio waves themselves are physical things and memories are not. But the point is that while our, our brain is associated with our accessing our memories, our memories are really a distinct thing that we will have even when we're no longer tied to these brains and body, okay? Moving on to one more reason that we should reject physicalism, and this is that the, the basis of adopting the physicalist view is evolutionary naturalism. And with regard to beliefs about reality, evolutionary naturalism is self-refuting. That is, it cuts off the, the branch that it sits on. And let me, let me give you a couple of quotes that, that may get at this. The first one I don't have on the screen is, is by um, J.B.S. Haldane, who's an evolutionary biologist. This was written in about the 1920s. But he recognized this problem. He said, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of the atoms in my brain, I have no reason to believe that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms in the first place. Okay? Uh, I do have a quote on the screen, I think, that says the same thing, only this is a modern, uh, a current atheist uh, philosopher, Michael Roos. He says, why should a bunch of atoms have thinking ability? Why should I, even as I write now, be able to reflect on what I am doing? And why should you, even as you read now, be able to ponder my points, agreeing or disagreeing? No one, certainly not the Darwinian as such, seems to have any answer to this. The point is that there is no scientific answer. Now here in his conclusion, he, he makes the mistake of equating science with naturalism. And that's why there's no scientific answer. Uh, he artificially constrains science to having natural answers. There, there's an easy answer for this, and that is that, that that's not all that's at work here. That, in fact, we are more than body and brains and the product of an evolutionary process. Um, let me read a, a fairly long quote by C.S. Lewis um, that gets at this same idea. This is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. And I think some of you have probably uh, are familiar with the, the final line of this quote. 
which I do have on the board. And that is, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Is that familiar to some of you? Okay, now I want, I want you to understand here that the context in which that concluding sentence has to do with exactly what we're talking about this morning. So pardon the length here, but I, but I like it. I was taught at school when I had done a sum to prove my answer. The proof or verification of my Christian answer to the cosmic sum is this. When I accept theology, by which he means Christian theology, I may find difficulties at this point or that in harmonizing it with some particular truths which are embedded in the mythical cosmology derived from science. I might have some problems with what science is saying. But by mythical cosmology derived from science, he's, he's referring to evolutionary naturalism, okay? But I can get in or allow for science as a whole under an understanding of theology. Granted that reason, capital R meaning God, granted that reason is prior to matter and that the light of that primal reason illuminates finite minds, we're made in the image of God. I can understand how men should come by observation and inference to know a lot about the universe they live in. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, if I accept evolutionary naturalism, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry, in the long run, on the meaningless flux of, of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this, to me, is the final test. This is how I distinguish dreaming from waking. When I am awake, I can, in some degree, account for and study my dream. The dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. I know that there are such things as dreams. I know that I had eaten an indigestible dinner. I know that a man of my reading might be expected to dream of dragons. But while in the nightmare, I could not have fitted in my waking experience. The waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific points of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because, by, because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So he's saying the same thing. The, the, the evolutionary naturalist view is self-refuting. It cuts off the branch upon which it sits. So now, Eric, if I could have that summary slide. So I've given you... Uh, six or seven reasons why we should reject physicalism and adopt a view that is like that that's just assumed and described throughout the Bible, that we are more, that our mental life, our consciousness is more than just the firing of neurons in our brain. Again, this is contrary to what much of the, the world around us is saying today, but it's one of those areas in which we as Christians need to, to think aright, to have our minds transformed in this regard. Um, I didn't really get to the last one, which is the failure of naturalism generally. Um, so again, the, the reason physicalism arose fairly recently, the reason people even considered the idea that maybe we could discover all of our thought life in, in our brains, in the physical makeup of our brains, is because of an adoption of, of this view called naturalism and, and an application of naturalism to science. Now, you'll just have to take uh, my course at the Kilns College this fall, which is in science and the Bible, and we'll go into depth into that and, and this question and, and many others, but I won't take the time now. Um, 
But I do want to discuss just three, just briefly, three implications of, of what I've shared with you today. Uh, the, the idea that we are dualistic persons, that we're more than just our bodies and brains. And, uh, and the first implication, I've, I've said it already and I just want to drive it home, is, is that in fact the Bible is the accurate worldview when it comes to this question. Of course, our take here at Antioch, the reason we exist as a church community, the reason we're here every Sunday morning teaching and preaching is because we believe that the biblical understanding and the specifically Christian understanding of reality of the world in which we live is the uniquely accurate one. We acknowledge and recognize that the world around us has competing views and there's a, a big part of the world around us in our day that would say that whatever view you hold is somehow true, even if it's contrary to the true view that I hold, right? So in this area, no matter how loudly the physicalist voice is heard, in this area, it turns out that all the evidence and research align themselves with the way uh, the Bible has all along described human persons, okay? As, as both body and soul. And the second point I would make is that in, if, if we look at this scripture verse with which I started that mandates us to allow for the transformation of our minds, the implication of our, our discussion today is that that transformation is not going to be through some sort of physiological treatment or, or something like that. That that transformation is going to involve the hard work of intellectual rigor, we're going to have to expose ourselves to truth, maybe more than we're comfortable, and it's going to be a spiritual event where we allow the Holy Spirit to, to participate in that transformation of our mind. We have to be open to reconsidering long-held beliefs if they come from the world around us and are not based in, in scriptural truth and the way things really are. But we're not going to take a drug to accomplish the transformation of our mind towards truth. We're going, to, we're going to have to do some hard intellectual work, maybe take a class, maybe read a book. And we're going to have to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit to, to help us through that process. And then the, the third implication is that we, and by we I mean our souls, the, the people that we really are, are going to transcend our body and brain, that we are in fact going to outlive the death of our body, that we are immortal beings, that we deep down, the, the person, the soul, the I, the ego that we really think about as me has an eternal life, is going to survive the death of our body and soul. And that's something we can look forward to with, with, with great relish, especially those of us for whom the body and, and maybe even the brain has begun to let us down a little bit in, in latter years. Um, in Luke 23, 43, this is where Jesus is hanging on the cross and conversing with the, with the thief next to him who's come to recognize both Jesus' holiness and his own sinfulness. And he asked Jesus to consider him in the next life. And Jesus' words to him are, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus recognized that he, the thief, who he really is, would be in paradise with Jesus that day, even though his body would still be hanging on a cross dead or, or thrown on whatever rubbish heap they, they did, they, they threw criminals on. Let me end with a personal story. Uh, my own mother passed away... Uh, about a month ago, three years ago, okay? So July of three years ago. And I was able to speak at her memorial service. And she, uh, she had had heart conditions that, that kept her fairly sedentary. Uh, more importantly, she'd had uh, a series of... Um, <laughs> I'm having a memory problem here. <laughs> strokes. <laughs> a series of strokes which really affected uh, her speech certainly her memory, her ability to um, converse. So, 
so her abilities in the area about which we've talked today, today, her mental faculties were not for the past, for the, for the last few years of her life, what she would have liked them to have been and certainly weren't what we would have liked them to have been. She was hampered by effects in her brain. And what I was able to share with her friends and family gathered there during her uh, memorial service was that the moment she, that is her true person, her soul, left her dead and failing body, she immediately reacquired mental faculties and, and abilities and capacities that far surpassed not only what she'd experienced in the last few years of her life, but, but far surpassed her mental abilities ever while confined to this body and brain. And that's what we have to look forward to uh, is, is a freedom from the, f- the frail and failing bodies and brains that we, that we now have. We are, you know, the bottom line ultimately is that we are immortal souls temporarily confined to human bodies and brains. And that's the biblical picture, and that's the picture that we get when we analyze the, the arguments and the evidence from science on this issue. And that's what I'll leave you with today. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Creator and Father, we just uh, thank you for, uh, for bringing us into this world, for sending your Son to save us, that we might have relationship with you, our Creator. Uh, We thank you for um, creating us in your image, which includes the ability to discover truths about our universe and truths about uh, your creative process and truths even about who we are as people. We thank you for developments in science and philosophy of the past few years that have enabled us to Uh, rightly understand that the way the Bible describes us as souls who have bodies is the way it really is. And we just pray that as we think about these things today and this week, as we discuss them with our, our friends and fellow believers, that we would come to a greater appreciation of uh, who we are as your children. We confess that we haven't always cultured the, uh, we haven't always cared for and cultivated the life of the mind as you call us to do, and we, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to uh, improve in that regard, that we would uh, come to not only learn more about uh, your love for us and, and the way you made us, but that we would come to be able to defend it in a, in a world that has opposing views on on these issues. We just uh, would continue to praise and worship you this morning and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.